this morning, we open God's word to Leviticus chapter 23. Leviticus chapter 23. As you're turning there, I invite you to think about how, how strange some of these feasts are that we'll be reading about. They, they almost seem foreign because we don't practice them today. And yet, as we read these, be mindful of the fact that the God who is relating to his people in Old Testament Israel via these feasts is doing the same thing with us today. He's moving toward them and giving them rhythms to their lives that fix their attention on him and his goodness and in his mercy. And so as we read this, even though they're going to feel very, very foreign in a lot of ways, um, I invite you to, to at least frame your thinking and your expectation to see them as something very relevant to us who experience the fulfillment of all these feasts in Jesus Christ. So this is the word of the Lord from Leviticus chapter 23. We'll read the whole passage. The Lord spoke to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, these are my appointed feasts, the appointed feasts of the Lord, which you are to proclaim as sacred assemblies. There are six days when you may work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of rest, a day of sacred assembly. You are not to do any work wherever you live. It is a Sabbath to the Lord. These are the Lord's appointed feasts, the sacred assemblies you are to proclaim at their appointed times. The Lord's Passover begins at twilight on the 14th day of the first month. On the 15th day of that month, the Lord's Feast of Unleavened Bread begins. For seven days you must eat bread made without yeast. On the first day, hold a sacred assembly and do no regular work. For seven days, present an offering made to the Lord by fire, and on the seventh day, hold a sacred assembly and do no regular work. Verse 9, the Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, when you enter the land I am going to give you and you reap its harvest, bring to the priest a sheaf of the first grain you harvest. He is to wave the sheaf before the Lord so it will be accepted on your behalf. The priest is to wave it on the day after the Sabbath. On the day you wave the sheaf, you must sacrifice as a burnt offering to the Lord a lamb a year old without defect, together with its grain offering of two-tenths of an ephah, of fine flour mixed with oil, an offering made to the Lord by fire, a pleasing aroma, and its drink offering of a quarter of a hin of wine. You must not eat any bread or roasted or new grain until the very day you bring this offering to your God. This is to be a lasting ordinance for the generations to come wherever you live. Verse 15, from the day after the Sabbath, the day you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, count off seven full weeks. Count off 50 days up to the day after the seventh Sabbath. And then present an offering of new grain to the Lord. From wherever you live, bring two loaves made of two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour, baked with yeast as a wave offering of first fruits to the Lord. Present with this bread seven male lambs, each a year old and without defect, one young bull and two rams. They will be a burnt offering to the Lord, together with their grain offerings and their drink offerings, an offering made by fire, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. Then sacrifice one male goat for a sin offering and two lambs, each a year old, for a fellowship offering. The priest is to wave the two lambs before the Lord as a wave offering, together with the bread of the firstfruits. They are a sacred offering to the Lord for the priests. On that same day, you are to proclaim a sacred assembly and do no regular work. This is to be a lasting ordinance for the generations to come wherever you live. 
When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Leave them for the poor and the alien. I am the Lord your God. The Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, On the first day of the seventh month you are to have a day of rest, a sacred assembly commemorated with trumpet blasts. Do no regular work, but present an offering made to the Lord by fire. Verse 26, the Lord said to Moses, The tenth day of the seventh month is the day of atonement. Hold a sacred assembly and deny yourselves and present an offering made to the Lord by fire. Do no work on that day because it is the day of atonement. When atonement is made for you before the Lord your God. Anyone who does not deny himself on that day must be cut off from his people. I will destroy from among his people anyone who does any work on that day. You shall do no work at all. This is to be a lasting ordinance for the generations to come, wherever you live. It is a Sabbath of rest for you, and you must deny yourselves. From the evening of the ninth day of the month until the following evening, you are to observe your Sabbath. Verse 33, the Lord said to Moses, say to the Israelites, on the fifteenth day of the seventh month of the Lord's feast of tabernacles begins, and it lasts for seven days. The first day is a sacred assembly. Do no regular work. For seven days present offerings made to the Lord by fire, and on the eighth day hold a sacred assembly and present an offering made to the Lord by fire. It is the closing assembly. Do no regular work. These are the Lord's appointed feasts, which you are to proclaim as sacred assemblies for bringing offerings made to the Lord by fire, the burnt offerings and grain offerings, sacrifices and drink offerings required for each day. These offerings are in addition to those for the Lord's Sabbaths and in addition to your gifts and whatever you have vowed and all the free will offerings you give to the Lord. So, beginning with the 15th day of the seventh month, after you have gathered the crops of the land, celebrate the festival of the Lord for seven days. The first day is a day of rest and the eighth day also is a day of rest. On the first day you are to take choice fruit from the trees and palm fronds, leafy branches and poplars and rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. Celebrate this as a festival to the Lord for seven days each year. This is to be a lasting ordinance for the generations to come, celebrated in the seventh month. Live in booths for seven days. All native-born Israelites are to live in booths, so your descendants will know that I had the Israelites live in booths when I brought them out of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So Moses announced to the Israelites the appointed feasts of the Lord. So far, the reading of God's word, let us ask his blessing as we consider it this morning. Father, as we have read of these different feasts and these different days, we confess that they can sometimes feel a bit puzzling and a bit bewildering to count all these days and wonder when they were happening. And so, Father, we come with expectant hearts. We ask that you would teach us this morning and help us to understand the beauties of these sacred times that you have instituted to your people. For Jesus' sake, amen. I don't know about you, when I read a passage like that, I, I do find this list of days and events happening on these days to be somewhat perplexing. And again, we mentioned earlier, these, these are kind of foreign to us. Uh, we, we aren't doing this in South Holland this morning in terms of taking animals and, and slaughtering them or, or holding grain up in the air like they seem to be doing here. And so it can be puzzling. It can also be hard to just keep track of all the numbers. I've been struck these last couple of months of shutdown um, have, have really messed with my ability to keep track of time. 
couple of uh, months ago or whenever it was here too. I can't even remember exactly when this started. But I remember at the beginning uh, feeling really off-center. I had something of a time crisis because usually my days and my weeks are, are pretty predictable. Right? There's my wake-up times. As I teach at Mid-America Seminary, there's my, my teaching days, there's my research days, which, which are very clearly defined in my schedule. There's meeting days. Every week I had certain meetings to go to. I would have exercise that I would do in the afternoons and was used to evening chats with my neighbors. All these things that sort of broke up my week and created a cycle to my days were gone. And in fact, the chief rhythm of my week that Sunday morning and and afternoon worship attendance routine, that was completely obliterated, or I should say at least significantly modified. You see, when the shutdown happened, for me, everything became blurred. As all these meetings went away, all my ordinary routines went away, especially feeling that huge problem of no more Sunday worship rhythms. First life was a bit simpler, I'll admit, right? And, and maybe many of us felt this. We've, we live far too breakneck-paced lives. We race along from activity to activity. Some of us are workaholics. Others of us are just activity-aholics. Those might even be good activities, right? They might be church activities or community activities or school activities, but we're still just activity-aholics. And we can race along without really slowing down to delight in God's creation. And so, in that sense, these opening days of that shutdown kind of were something of a a relief. And yet, life is supposed to have rhythms, isn't it? I especially felt that in my own life as I lost track of the direction that my life was going under God's sovereign care. And in fact, that makes Leviticus 23, for all its foreignness... For all its strangeness, for all its puzzling mathematics of counting up how many days you do what at what time of year during which month, we find a very fitting passage for us at a time when when we too can be tempted to blur time. This morning we're going to see this. God wants our lives to be patterned with rhythms. God wants our lives to be patterned with rhythms that constantly remind us of creation, of redemption, and of the hope of glory. See, Leviticus 23 comes along and sort of throws a stick in the spokes of the wheel of time. Because God shows Israel, and this morning God is showing us that time is His. Time is for Him and to be lived in recognition of His lordship over time. Indeed, Leviticus 23 answers the question, will man serve time or will time serve man? We'll look at three points this morning. First of all, we'll see creation rhythms here in Leviticus 23. Secondly, we'll see redemption rhythms. And then third and finally, we'll see glorification rhythms or consummation rhythms. So first of all, creation rhythms. We can think, we can think of Genesis 1, which tells us those famous words in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. See, Holy Scripture opens with that account of creation, telling us of the God who is and always has been and who created all things. It tells us that God created, thereby telling us that we worship a creator God. He is the one who creates all things. And Genesis 1 and 2 tells us he created all things for a purpose. 
And what is so amazing is to know that God created all things good. Indeed, human beings are called very good. This is very different from a lot of religions who believe that, that the physical world is something we need to escape by means of meditation or, or something transcendent. And yet, Scripture tells us that the physical world is a good thing. But we also learn from Genesis 1 and 2 that as the creator, God is also the sustainer of his creation. God is the provider God. Now, ancient Israel was especially in touch with creation because ancient Israel lived off the land in ways that many of us uh, don't really recognize or don't pay attention to today. That's certainly still the case that we live off the land, we live off the earth, we live off the creation, although technology and urbanization and all these things can often make this less apparent. Now, I grew up in a suburb of Los Angeles, California. Um, I knew nothing of crops. I knew very little of the earth. When I went to Dort College in northwest Iowa, that was my first experience with the rhythms of life, really. The, ry the seasonal rhythms, the harvest rhythms. Never before had I expected to look out my bedroom window and see a tractor go by carrying trailers full of corn and beans. It was remarkable. And yet every year that began to happen. Even out here, though we are really in a suburb of Chicago, I know from my office window at Mid-America Reform Seminary, I see a field behind me that gets plowed and planted and harvested every year. But we are a people who depend upon the creation. And so in Leviticus 23, verses 9 to 14, we read of a rhythm a set of rhythms that draws our attention to the earth and to its seasons and to its cycles. These verses set apart the season of harvest as a special time of remembrance. It's called the Feast of Firstfruits. We read in 23 verse 10, When you come into the land I give you and reap its harvest, you shall bring the sheaf of the firstfruits of your harvest to the priest, and he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord so that you may be accepted. See, at harvest time, the Israelite farmer was not allowed to just dive in, chop all the crops down, bring it in, and make himself a feast. No, first a single sheaf was to be bundled and brought to the priest. Verse 14 says that he may not eat any of the harvest until this ritual was done. And handing over this very first pickings of, of the, the field, the priest would wave it. And this idea of waving seems to be something more like holding it up. And yet that's a very fitting posture, isn't it? The, 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 the farmer and the priest recognizing that God is on high. The great provider is up here. And we know our place down here is dependent upon his greatness. But this waving of the sheath, this, this bringing of this first fruits was a sign of thanksgiving. And it was also an entreaty to God. Verse 11 says, that you may be accepted refers to seeking God's favor for the rest of the harvest season. So here already is a rhythm orienting, orienting Israel toward God who provides food. Now if you go look down at verses 15 to 22 that we read, we have another harvest-related festival, this one called the Feast of Weeks. Now the Feast of Weeks is called the Feast of Weeks because it took place seven weeks after 
the Feast of First Fruits. Feast of Weeks also goes by the name Pentecost. That's a Greek, a Greek description, and it was called such because it took place on the 50th day after the first fruits. You can think of pentagon or pentagram, different shapes with the number five in them. Well, Pentecost is fitting into this 50th day. If we could do a quick little preview and all of a sudden race forward in history, remember Acts chapter 2 tells us about an even more exciting harvest celebration that took place on Pentecost. Because that day was a harvest of people. That day was a harvest of people endowed by the Holy Spirit to spread the good news of Jesus Christ. Already you can see how Pentecost and the fall harvest festivals get ratcheted up into remarkable significance in Scripture. This Feast of Pentecost involved a, a few different things, a Feast of Weeks. Verse 16 tells us of new grain that was used in it. Verse 17, loaves of bread. Verse 18, of different animals that were uh, brought up as drink offerings. Also, that these would be a burnt offering. Leviticus 23 uses that language often of this burnt offering, allowing a pleasing aroma to come up to the Lord. Something I think most of us can relate to. Perhaps if we've, if we've been getting home from work and we get the, the whiff across our backyard fence of the neighbors grilling up hamburgers or steaks. We sort of can relate to what it's like for a burnt offering to, to be pleasant to the nostril. Well, here these offerings would be received with even greater delight by God himself. Verse 19 talks about a goat that would be a, a sin offering. Showing that here too, we were orienting, being oriented to the fact that sin had been atoned for. And finally, in this harvest celebration, there would be a fellowship offering. That communal meal between God and man. Showing that there was no more sin separating them. Indeed, there was peace and there was fellowship between God and his people. This feast vividly depicted the fullness and rest and contentment that God provides, the creator God, the provider God gives. We see how this is provided for the people who do no regular work. I think you may have heard that happen a lot in this passage. Verse 21 talks about resting from their work, and so people in this feast would get a break. They'd receive rest, and yet even for the poor and for the alien they too would experience God, the creator and provider's goodness. They will not go hungry, but instead they will be supplied with food left at the edges of the field. God delights that even the poor would experience his goodness. Every year these feasts would be celebrated, and God would be praised as the creator God, who is the provider God. I think it's interesting when you look at feasts like this, how they short-circuit the impulse that we have kind of naturally to focus on ourselves at harvest time. Or maybe for those of us who don't actually harvest, maybe payday is the best analogy. Right? Rather than, than getting our check and thinking of how can I use this for me, these kinds, of, these kinds of festivals hit the pause button and say, wow, what a, what a rich blessing this paycheck is. What a rich blessing this crop is. This pause of busyness allows us to delight in God's fatherly care. These feasts that took place at harvest time and seven weeks later imposed a rhythm 
to Israel's life, a creation rhythm that structured all they would do. And Israel can't help but praise God for his work of creation and providence. But as we know, something happened after God's good creation. The fall. The fall into sin. Something changed this idyllic scene that we read about in Genesis 1 and 2. And yet what's remarkable is that the Bible tells us that God did not give up on his creation at that point. And that brings us to our second main point this morning. Redemption rhythms. Following Genesis 1 and 2, Genesis 3 tells us the story of humanity's fateful rebellion where Adam and Eve listened to the serpent's lie. Where Adam and Eve were dissatisfied with being sort of lower rulers, vassal kings we might say, under the great rule of the great king God himself. And instead how they sought to enact their own will, their own fiat, their own orders, orders detached From the orders of the great king. And on that fateful day, Adam and Eve plunged themselves, but indeed all of humanity, into sin and into misery. Indeed, the whole universe groans under the curse. Why is it that our nation, why is it our world is facing a pandemic right now? It's because we live in a world that is groaning. A world where the curse remains at work. Yet what's remarkable is that even though man had committed this cosmic treason against the creator God, the almighty God, against his loving father, against his provider, God still chose to move toward these sinful people and fix the problems that they caused. God was pleased to redeem his people. Already in Genesis, we see God revealing His Son, Jesus Christ, albeit in type and in shadow, things that relate dimly to what will be known in fullness in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In order to portray the reality that God was for them, that God had redeemed them, God also instituted a number of redemption rhythms for Israel to enjoy. Leviticus 23 singles out four of those, four yearly festivals that vividly portrayed God's grace and mercy. Verses 4 to 8 describe the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Verses 26 to 32 describe the Day of Atonement, in Hebrew called Yom Kippur. And in verses 33 to 43, we learn about the Feast of Tabernacles, which in Hebrew is Sukkot. And what's interesting is how these four feasts take place six months apart, twice a year where Israel was again invited to hit pause, now to reflect upon God's redemption and his mercy. And let's look at each of these in turn. First of all, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. We read about this along with Passover in verses 4 to 8. We have something of a summary here in Leviticus 23. If you wanted to, to read the full background, you would need to turn to the book of Exodus, Exodus 12, Really, Leviticus 23 is assuming and and expecting that we would have understood Exodus 12 already. But we find a number of details there about what happened on the Passover. We read in Exodus that a lamb was to be killed and its blood was to be painted along the frames of the doors. The lamb was then to be cooked, prepared with bitter herbs, and then eaten in its entirety. You weren't allowed to put this in a Tupperware. And then throw it in the fridge afterwards, right? You had to eat everything. And if you couldn't eat it all, it was to be burned. Whatever was left over. 
as they celebrated the Passover, Israel was to eat it in haste. They were to wolf it down, to be in a hurry. They, they had to have their clothing girded up, like, like kind of, maybe we would put it, they had to be dressed in their exercise clothes, their running clothes. Um, they had to wear their sandals, ready to hit the road. They even had to have their walking staves in their hand as they ate. Now the Hebrew word for Passover is, is almost better envisioned as, as a bird hovering over. Think of birds who hover over their young and protect them. And in this feast, God himself hovers over his people Israel to keep out the destroyer. In Exodus 12, verse 23, God himself will stand guard and abide with his people during the dark night of judgment. And so the Passover orients them to the God who protects them with his presence. Another part of this was that Feast of Unleavened Bread, which would immediately follow. Now, at Passover, unleavened bread was something of a side dish, right? You think of going into the restaurant and they provide some bread and some oil for you at the beginning. It's not really the main meal. We like to go to Olive Garden and gobble down breadsticks, but actually the, the breadsticks aren't supposed to be the main course. Well, in the Feast of Unleavened Bread, they kind of become that. Some of us I know actually do think the breadsticks are the main course. Most of our kids do, and most of us adults shamefully do also. But we're getting off track in doing that. But it is interesting that this side dish from the Passover does become the main meal at the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now for the next seven days. There's a lot of symbolism here, and we, we really can't cover it all, but what is very significant is how there is no yeast in this bread, how it, it truly is unleavened. And the significance of that seems to be making a clean break with the past enslavement in Egypt. Some writers have suggested that the symbolism is at work and that the yeast that would have been used to make the bread rise would be Egyptian yeast. And that Israel was being encouraged to break with Egypt and instead await a day when new yeast would be provided. When they could allow their bread to rise with yeast that is free, yeast of the promised land. And so this was a feast of hope. A feast reminding them that they were being delivered from enslavement and that they eventually would have new yeast, new leaven, free leaven. Now Leviticus 23 that we're looking at really assumes all of this but does focus our attention on that theme we've heard already, you shall do no regular work in verses 7 and 8. Here is a springtime reenactment of that great quintessential act of God's redemption, that paradigmatic work of redemption in the exodus from Egypt. But apart from the spring, there were fall rhythms as well. Remember, we're stacking these on, these feasts we've already considered happening in the fall at the harvest. But here in the fall, they would also engage in a redemptive rhythm that would highlight that God had removed their sins from them and instead placed them on a lamb, on a substitute who would take them away from the camp, who would take them far away from them. Leviticus 16 describes this Day of Atonement ritual in detail. And it is significant that the Day of Atonement, that Yom Kippur, is really the center of Leviticus, the literary center of Leviticus, but not only that, it is the literary center of the whole five books of the Pentateuch, Genesis through Deuteronomy. This is how important of a feast this is. 
And this would be a way to again reflect on God's remedy for sin. One provided graciously for the people. Immediately following this, Israel would celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. Where they would make small huts out of palm branches. And they would live in them instead of in their houses. When I, li- when I studied in West Los Angeles, there was a large Jewish community. And even today, our Jewish neighbors and Jewish friends will practice this act of building booths. And they'll build little tents outside of their homes. I saw them outside of businesses. And people would sleep out in there instead of in their houses three feet away. But here too, Israel, in building these tabernacles, in building these booths and sleeping in them, Israel would reenact the escape from Egypt. Sort of re-perform it, like staging a drama. We read in Leviticus 23, verse 42, Live in booths for seven days. All native-born Israelites are to live in booths, so that your descendants will know that I had the Israelites live in booths when I brought them out of Egypt. I... In the Lord your God. The living in booths in profound ways seals this reality to Israel that their ancestors also lived in booths when they experienced God's redemption in the Exodus. See, in the face of sin, in the face of the fall, God had indeed provided forgiveness. God had indeed given reconciliation. And though mankind was in bondage to sin, which is vividly portrayed by enslavement in Egypt, God nevertheless provided an escape. And twice a year, God's people would embody this reality. And here in Leviticus 23, the focus is on rest from ordinary work, where God answers enslavement with freedom. And he also answers work done for ruthless taskmasters, By giving rest from work. Some of us are able to take nice long vacations every year. Some people even take two fancy trips or three fancy trips. And yet in our age of productivity, in our age of efficiency, many of us take these vacations, right, and we bring our work along. Those that do still find themselves sort of sneaking in extra work, maybe on the phone while the kids are in the pool, or getting up early to do some correspondence, or staying up late to write some reports. But imagine being given a true break. Imagine a real vacation away from distractions, away from the ideals of this fast-paced world of unfettered productivity. A true break without the coming work looming over top. See, Israel had freedom and rest rhythms designed to interrupt their own plans for their time, to interrupt the ideals of productivity that were imposed in unhealthy ways so that instead they could enjoy God's merciful work in their lives. And indeed, this would refresh them to go back to work in more grateful ways. But this would be a time of rest. But there's one last thing we're going to look at this morning, connected to rest. And that is this idea of glorification rhythms. The new hope we have of the consummation of all things. This is our third point this morning. As New Testament Christians, as we've alluded to, we don't, sacri- we don't practice any of these festivals anymore. Because these festivals were types. They were shadows 
that were cast backward in history from a reality that has arrived in Jesus Christ. Now, this doesn't make them somehow bad. Indeed, these were great tokens of God's mercy. God gave these festivals to his old covenant people to bless them and to benefit them. And these weren't a drag for them, but great opportunities for rejoicing. But the New Testament shows us the fulfillment of these things, the fullness of which all of these festivals could could barely reach to, as fun and as glorious and as enjoyable as they were. Because the New Testament tells us that Jesus Christ is the firstfruits. 1 Corinthians 15 describes this in detail. The New Testament shows us that at Pentecost, at the Feast of Weeks, Jesus sent his Spirit among his people. The New Testament tells us that Jesus is our Passover, our cover over that protects us from the wrath that we deserve. Jesus is our unleavened bread who nourishes us with his body. He is our day of atonement lamb who bears our sin away and faces the curse of being banished from God's presence so we don't have to. And Jesus is our Exodus booth shelter, our Exodus tabernacle. The one who literally tabernacled among us, as John 1.14 tells us. We are sheltered by him in his flesh. Not merely by leaves and branches and sticks outside of our homes. And so, so many of these festivals have been fulfilled in Christ, which is why we no longer practice them as part of our yearly rhythms. And yet, that doesn't mean that we are left with a life containing no rhythms. Indeed, Leviticus 23 reminds us of one rhythm that continues, the Sabbath. Leviticus 23, verse 3. For many of us who are actively engaged in our churches, many of us who believe in Jesus, who have been in churches perhaps our whole lives, resting on the Lord's Day is so familiar to us that we almost forget what it's designed to do in our lives. Certainly we rest from our our works of bondage to sin, as our Heidelberg Catechism states beautifully in question 103. And yet the rest we enjoy on the Sabbath is actually a greater rest. The rest we enjoy is a a glorious rest, an eternal rest. The consummate rest of the new heavens and the new earth. Israel's Sabbath that we hear described in Leviticus 23 verse 3 was a weekly reenactment of God's own rest. Read about this in Exodus 31, verses 16 and 17. The Israelites are to observe the Sabbath, celebrating it for the generations to come as a lasting covenant. It will be a sign between me and the Israelites forever. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day he abstained from work and rested. I think it's remarkable how God conveys to us his rest in ways that we can understand. Exodus 31, verse 17, he ceased, that is, he Sabbathed, and he was refreshed. See, God relates his day of rest in ways that we can relate to. This is what theologians call an anthropomorphism, where God depicts himself in ways that are similar to what we do. And so our resting on the Sabbath is designed to refresh us, to provide us with a necessary break. But there's something else that's remarkable about how God's rest is described in Scripture. And and that is how it ties together both time and space. Sabbath is not merely a day in part of a cycle of days that passes by. 
But the Sabbath is also a place. Now that sounds puzzling, but how does that make sense? We find this specifically in how Hebrews chapter 3 reflects on a famous event that happened in Numbers 13 and 14. In fact, a lot of scripture has reflected on this event. Psalm 95 does the same thing. Numbers 13 and 14 describes a time when Israel was supposed to go into the promised land, that land of Sabbath rest, and to conquer it and to take it in God's name and to enjoy God's great benefits. And yet they rebelled and they refused to. Well, Hebrews chapters 3 and 4 describes this story where the people rebel and God punishes them. And Hebrews 3 verse 11 says, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now wait a minute, does that mean that Israel never once from that point on actually observed the Sabbath day? The answer is no, Israel did observe the Sabbath day. But we see here that God's rest is not merely the rest of the Sabbath day, but that the rest was to enter the land of rest, the promised land. Rest, Sabbath, is a place here in Psalm 95 and in Hebrews 3 and 4. And God says that Israel was not allowed to enter that Sabbath place because of unbelief. It's remarkable how Hebrews contrast that with those of us today who believe in Jesus Christ. Hebrews 4.1 says, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should be, have, seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. But we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Beloved Christian, we have entered that rest. It's pretty profound. On the one hand, we, we should always be reminded that our citizenship is in heaven. We need to be reminded that Christ's resurrection body is indeed those first fruits of the new creation. We have entered that rest in the sense that already now provisionally we taste of the age to come breaking in in Jesus Christ. On my shelf in my office I have a, a vial of black sand from a beach in Hawaii that I once got a long time ago. Now it's not as though I'm always in Hawaii, but here in my office I have almost a little bit of Hawaii here in the Midwest. Perhaps a corny illustration, but, but how much greater when the first fruits of the new creation, Jesus Christ, is present among us. Giving us a brief taste of that new creation goodness. So on the one hand, our citizenship is there. And yet on the other hand, when we think of how we have entered that rest, we do observe the Sabbath every week, as we're doing right now. And when we do, we get a brief glimpse there too of this new creation. Our Sabbath rest is a time of refreshing, a time of joy, a time of healing. Indeed, it is a time when we enjoy the refreshment and joy and healing that is chiefly the, the, the reality of that new creation. And though our lives are not structured by yearly, separate creation, redemption, and consummation rhythms, 
our lives are today structured by a rhythm that happens every week in the Sabbath that orients us to all three of those realities. Look how the Sabbath does this in Scripture. Exodus 20, verses 8 to 11 tells us they're to remember the Sabbath because of God's work of creating in six days. The law we read earlier showed us that we're to keep the Sabbath because God created. Deuteronomy 5, verses 12 to 15, which is the other list of the Ten Commandments, takes that same Sabbath command and invites us to remember the Sabbath because Israel was enslaved in Egypt and yet was redeemed in the Exodus. So here now the Sabbath is also applied to redemption. And yet as we've just seen from Hebrews, the Sabbath rest also ties into that eternal Sabbath rest that we enjoy in the new heavens and the new earth. Beloved Christian, friends, in this time of lockdown, and even once things are unlocked, let's embrace this rich rhythm, this wonderful rhythm that God has placed into our lives. May it remind you of your redemption that God has accomplished in Christ. Let it shape your perspective on the work that he's called you to right now. That God is the God of creation and God is the God of providence. And may the Sabbath also strengthen your hope for the future. Leviticus chapter 23 draws our attention. These feasts draw our attention to a great feast yet to come. The feast that Revelation 19 verses 6 to 9 describes as the wedding feast of Christ the Lamb. That great feast where we will gather not merely as guests, but as the guest of honor. Where we will gather as the bride of Christ herself clothed in white linen and rejoicing in Christ the King for all eternity. May the feasts that we read about in ancient Israel build up our excitement in the feast, the rhythm we enjoy today in the Sabbath. And ratchet our hearts heavenward that we might bring glory to our wonderful creator, redeemer, consummator, God. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let us pray. Father, our lives can blur together into just one day after the other, one week after the other, one month after the other, one year after the other. But we thank you that you would not have us live so aimlessly, but that you've given us these rhythms that fix our wandering minds upon you and your greatness, upon you and your mercy. Lord, be with us in this time where it is especially tempting to lose track of the days. Give us hope. Give us confidence that you are sovereign and that all things happen according to your perfect plan. Be with us now in the remainder of this day and the remainder of our worship of you. For Jesus' sake, amen.